God, you are our treasure. The eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ is not something that we can take lightly or for granted. And even as we heard this morning about a ministry of our brother, the fact that life oftentimes is taken for granted even by us. We ask that we would remember and be thankful for what we have in Jesus, that even in this morning, that you would be glorified, O God, and through the reading and preaching of your word, that you would proclaim your word to your people. We ask that you would speak to us now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And this morning, we're going to be taking a break from our series in Mark and looking at the Sermon on the Mount, um, specifically Matthew chapter 6, uh, from verse 1 to 18. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn over there. uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 18. For those of us that are uh, younger, that are on Instagram, uh, there's been this one particular account that's gone viral over the last couple of weeks. And it's an account called Preachers in Sneakers. And what this is, is an account that showcases uh, many pastors, or at least so-called pastors, some would call them uh, prosperity teachers or false teachers, Uh, But there are these so-called pastors uh, with pictures of them and the shoes that they wear. And that may sound very either innocent innocent or boring on the surface, but it actually is a big deal. Uh, See, in this account, you're seeing people like Stephen Furtick and T.D. Jakes, Judas Smith, and John Gray. uh, People that are very, very popular in today's quote-unquote evangelical world. And you're seeing them in not just any ordinary shoes— Right? These aren't guys that are just wearing your typical Nikes or Adidas or Converse. Uh, they're wearing shoes in the big leagues. They're wearing shoes from Off-White and Yeezy and Gucci uh, and Louis Vuitton. Uh, this is a world where the shoes that are, you're purchasing for $400 would be considered very cheap. In fact, some of these shoes ring up for up to one to $3,000 per pair or per outfit. And the whole point of this account is you're seeing these individuals who are claiming to be religious leaders. These are so-called pastors, and yet they're flaunting the most expensive of items. Uh, But these individuals aren't just wearing them because they're pretty to look at. The reason is because in the subculture, the shoes that you wear and the clothes that you wear are a sign of your spiritual authority. It's a sign of how effective you are and successful you are as a pastor and as a leader. And this really is a psychological thing, isn't it? That you are looking at an individual who is wearing very expensive clothes, and therefore you assume that this individual is very elite. That the lavishness of what they wear is a sign of their spiritual success. That when they wear these one or two thousand dollar shoes, they are saying, follow me. I am a guru. I am a big shot. I am a maverick. And as one author writes about this website, he says this about what they're really saying behind their uh, clothing. I am successful for I have the sneakers. Follow me and you too can have the sneakers and all the success that they symbolize. See, what's really going on with these individuals is that their religious credibility as a pastor, as an influencer, and as a lifestyle prover is shown by what they wear. Their spiritual authority and credibility is defined by their flashy shoes. And I know that if you were to look at this account, a lot of it seems so ridiculous on the surface, right? I mean, I would encourage you later on to go on there and just see the lavishness of these individuals and what they're flaunting. 
But the reality is that even though most of us here are not sneakerheads, most of us are not into the world of buying expensive shoes, there is a tendency in every single one of us to use the external to show our spirituality. There is a real danger and a real temptation for every single one of us to do things on the surface to bolster our spiritual credibility, to look holier than we really are. There's this tendency and temptation to do pious things because we want to gain the attention and the approval of other people. There's a very real temptation to speak biblical language in Christianese, to look a certain way when you are worshiping or when you are praying, or even getting involved in many ministries which are very good and valuable, But the temptation is to do this in a way that's not for God, but is really about flaunting who you are, about showcasing some kind of religious identity. And there's the real temptation that these very good and spiritual things, which we should do as Christians, can become very easily a form of self-worship. And so in our text here, in Matthew 6, Jesus is asking a very simple question that every one of us needs to hear. What is your motivation for your righteous living? Why do you do the things that you do? Why are you seeking to live a life of righteousness and do what is considered by people here pious? Because the point is that in all of our religious duty, there is the temptation to make it about us. And Jesus here is reminding us that everything we do must be as a form of genuine worship for God, nothing else. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, going all the way back to Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, Jesus is telling us what it looks like to be one of his disciples. He's giving us the character of a kingdom citizen, an individual that will be in his future coming kingdom. And the whole point of what he is getting at is that when you are a Christian, your life will look a certain type of way. You will live in a certain type of way. It's not just about what you are doing, but who you are. And in the Beatitudes, he is showcasing the heart of a Christian. That you are an individual that is broken over your sin. You see your need for God and there is nothing good in you. And from that brokenness, you learn to uh, aspire after righteousness and desire righteousness. And God will form you into an individual that seeks to be a peacemaker and one that is meek and one that is gentle. He goes on to target the fact that what you see in religion often is not actually righteousness. You see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he was saying that you see these religious leaders, they're doing all of the right things. They're avoiding all of the sins that we talk about in church. And they are corrupt people for they do not have a righteous heart. He says that it's not enough to avoid killing other people, but if you hate them, you have committed murder already. It's not enough to avoid committing adultery or fornication, but if you lust in your heart, you're guilty of the same type of crime. It's not enough to just keep every one of your oaths and promises because God cares about your personal integrity and your word. As he's going through the section in chapter 5, it's not just about what you are doing, but who you are. That you must be an individual that has the character of God himself. 
And as we turn from chapter 5 to chapter 6, Jesus is moving from addressing our battle with sin to our battle with religion. The temptation that all of us have to not only do sinful things, but to even do righteous things, but with the wrong heart. That every single one of our righteous acts can fall into poisonous intentions. And so this is why we need to look at this text. We're going to be looking at this very simply as two parts. The principle in verse 1 and the practice from verse 2 to verse 18. Let's go ahead and read this text together. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And from verse uh, 7 all the way on to 15, he goes on to an excursus on prayer. And then it continues on in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of God. Starting in verse 1, he's giving the principle that he's trying to address here. See, he's talking in this whole section from verse 1 to 18 about the idea of piety. The idea of being a righteous individual of doing righteous things that every one of us as Christians are called to do. And here we have three examples, right? He talks about giving to the poor. Uh, He addresses prayer and he addresses fasting. Uh, Traditionally in the Christian world, people have called these spiritual disciplines, actions that we as believers do as a sign of our identity in God, our focus on God. And the reality is that we, as we live out this life of piety, as we do these actions, it is a form of worship. It's a form of conforming our will to God and pursuing holiness. You know, oftentimes in this day and age, we think of the idea as piety as a bad thing, as something that is, is weird or different. Uh, oftentimes you can think about those uh, monks that are off in the middle of nowhere, Right? Maybe they give themselves to a life of silence where they just don't talk to anyone and all they do is fast and pray every single day. Or maybe when you think of piety, you think of the Pope. Right? A guy that's wearing these, these grand lavish robes and you think that's just such a weird picture of religion. But the reality is that for us as Christians, we are to live a life of piety. We are supposed to practice many different things which show our devotion to God and grow our devotion to God. And these three examples that Jesus gives of giving to the poor and praying and fasting 
These are examples of what it means to practice the Christian life, of what it means to be a Christian, that it's not just avoiding sins, but it's about living in a certain type of way. But in that, he gives us a warning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of doing your religious things, not for God, but for other people. Beware of that reality. Beware of the the tendency in your heart to do these religious things to, to prove yourself to other people. Right? There are so many times where we as individuals, we as Christians, we can do so many good religious things, but to please other people, right? To please our parents or the fact that you and your family have gone to church for generations. Or maybe it's to impress a guy or a gal in this church. Or maybe it's because you want to one-up someone around you that you know in your social circle it's good to be religious and therefore you need to be the best of your peers. Or maybe you just have a tendency where you think that somehow you will impress God. See, it's very possible to do all sorts of pious things with a poisonous heart. This is something that we don't think about enough in church. There are very real benefits to looking religious, right? That in this social context, it is a good thing. It is a beneficial thing to be religious, to be godly. That people will look at you in a better light. People will talk about you in a better light. And so if we're not thinking about what's going on, we can so easily get into this world where we're just doing things, not because we really want to follow after God, but really to please the people around us. I mean, that is very much the temptation, even as a a pastor and as a preacher, that in this world, when you are standing in a pulpit and people are hearing you articulate the word of God, you get praise. You get people that come up to you and say, what a good job you are doing, how gifted you are. And so even in this world, there is the temptation to do this because you just want to please people, because you know the kind of praise that you're going to get. All of us face that type of temptation to do these righteous things because we want to be seen as holy people. And that is a temptation that you and I need to guard ourselves against. That is a danger that the Jews fell into time and time again in the Old Testament. It's like what you hear in Ezekiel 33 to 30, uh, verse 31. The Jews are in exile. They've walked away from God. They're being punished for their sin. And they're coming and they're listening to the prophet. And yet when they're listening to him, looking so readily and so apparent, they're not doing it with good intentions. But God says this to Ezekiel about the people. He says, they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. The temptation is to look so spiritual, to come before God as people come and yet not actually have a heart of worship. Right? In Israel's case, it was they were coming and, and listening to the prophets speak and saying, what a wonderful speaker he is. What a wonderful word of the Lord this is. But they were not worshiping God. And the temptation is true for us too. 
that you can do all these righteous things, look so religious and pious, and yet have your heart so far away from the Lord. This is human nature. And Jesus is speaking to us. And in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 16, in addressing these actions, these examples, he calls such an individual who does all the right things for the wrong heart a hypocrite. Right? Look at the text. In verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. In verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And then verse 16, And when you pray, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. He calls such an individual a hypocrite. And that was a very powerful word in that day. Because in, in the Greek, uh, that's literally the word for an actor. A person that was playing in a play. That would come on stage and you're, you're being a certain type of character. And what these actors would do is they would bring on a mask on stage. And as they were doing their part of the performance, they would wear that mask so everyone around them knew who they were. And that you would know who they represented and who they were trying to be. And in that same way, Jesus is saying, when you are doing religious actions for the wrong reason, you are an actor. You are a hypocrite. You are an individual that is trying to do things for a performance and it's literally the picture of an individual who is being two-faced. What hypocrisy does is turn religious action into a theater performance where you want to just behave a certain way before others. And that was the danger of the religious elite of Jesus' day. That was what the Pharisees fell into. And that is the temptation that we as people can fall into as well. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When you are doing all of these good things with bad intentions— you are like a whitewashed tomb. It is beautiful to look at. It is immaculate. It is white and clean and amazing. And then inside there is a decaying body. And we need to hear this warning against hypocrisy, don't we? Because it is so easy to appear righteous. It's so easy to do all of the right things, to say all the right words with people and look religious. It's easy to have a life where you're, you're covered in sin, that maybe you are a husband that's yelling at your wife, or you are an individual that is hiding some kind of sexual sin. But they, when you come to church, you smile. You look good. You say the right things. You may even lift your hands in worship. What Jesus is saying in verse 1 is that oftentimes we think of sin as these terrible, insidious things, right? 
murder and sexual immorality and drunkenness and abuse. But he's saying that sin and evil is found just as much in tithing and in prayer and in mercy and fasting. As the pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, sin is something which follows us all the way, even into the very presence of God. That if we are not careful, if we're not thinking about what's going on, that even that which is often seen as the most religious becomes a game. It becomes a form of self-worship. That even the holiest of actions can be hellish in intent. And therefore, I ask you, and Jesus is asking you, what is your intent in your righteous actions? Are you pursuing a life of piety with the right heart? When he gives us a very interesting warning, he's saying, beware of this and don't lose your reward. Read with me verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And this gets into a whole theology that I don't have time to unpack. But the reality is that God, if we are faithful Christians, will reward us on the final day. That every single person, whether good or bad, saved or unsaved, we will give an account for what we have done, and we will receive something in return. You see one example of this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will stand and give an account to God for our lives, and we will be recompensed so. And for us who are Christians, if we are faithful to the gospel, if we are living for God, there is a real reward. There are many times in the New Testament where you see this given, but one is found in Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying that when you are living for me, when you are being a light and you are proclaiming the gospel and you are persecuted, rejoice for your reward in heaven is great. When we live for God, when we obey him, there is a real reward. And I'll be honest, I don't know what that looks like exactly. I don't know if that means we're going to get some kind of future benefits because I know that in Revelation 4, we just give all of our crowns to Jesus anyway. But there is some kind of reward. And whether that's simply the pleasure of eternal life or something greater, only God knows. But he does intend to reward our faithfulness. Just remember this, that when we are living this Christian life, as difficult as it may be, we're not doing it simply to be masochists, right? Or we're not just choosing to deny ourselves simply because we want to be unhappy. But we believe that God has something better for every one of us. That God has something good for us. And that is what we hold on to. But for those that live the righteous life for the sake of other people, Jesus says this in verse 2. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. For those that are living this pious type of lifestyle, that are trying to look a certain way and be a certain way, they have their reward. That word truly is the word that we use as amen. It's something that is definite and defined. 
And the language and grammar here is almost as one of like a transaction. That when you go to a store and you buy something and you give them the money and they give you the object, the transaction is complete. It is done. There is no more that needs to happen. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that when you are doing all of these things for people, you have your reward. That little bit of encouragement or the one person that is thinking slightly higher of you, you finally have your reward. And that is it. That is all you get. There is nothing more for you. And that should be a scary statement. That the transaction is complete. You're not going to get anything else. But on the other hand, it is the individual that does these religious deeds, these pious acts, these spiritual disciplines in secret that is blessed by God. One example is in verse 4 of our text. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It is the individual that lives a pious lifestyle in secret, not to be seen by his peers, not to be seen by his family or his church family. That is the individual that is blessed by God. And Jesus is trying to say that these rewards, they have such a different level of strength. I I love it to the difference between Chuck E. Cheese and Dave and Buster's. You know, as a kid growing up, uh, I was always a gamer, and I loved playing arcade games. And, you know, I was relatively good at it too, right? I could do whatever the games were and figure out the system and get as many tickets as possible. And among all my friends, I would typically have a lot. But the thing is, you can't really get a lot when you're at Chuck E. Cheese, right? I mean, even though I had all these tickets, I would walk away at most with a couple stickers. Uh, You know, maybe a lollipop or two. Or maybe if I was really good, I would get one of those inflatable hammers that they sold for like 2,000 tickets, right? And and as a kid, you think that that's a big deal. I got this plastic ring. Look at what I got. But you realize as you grow older that that isn't such a big deal, is it? It's really not a great prize. And my eyes were open when I became a man. And I went to a place that was called Dave and Buster's. And my eyes were open to think, wow, this is amazing. That you're playing very much the same types of games, but the prizes are very real. That you could get Visa gift cards that were worth $100. And you could get a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One or even an espresso machine. Right? Things that real adults want. That is a real prize, isn't it? And it was through going there that I realized how small and paltry Chuck E. Cheese really was. That all these things I was going after really weren't that big of a deal, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That the types of things we go for, the reward that we have when we are seeking the praise of other people is such a small thing. It really is, is miserable and pitiful compared to the glory of the reward in him. It's in this verse that Jesus is saying, what kind of reward do you want? Why would you settle for something so small as a person just thinking slightly higher of you if you could have the reward of God? Again, what is the motivation behind your religious living? Are you doing it for people or are you doing it for God? Because what you were getting out of it doesn't even compare. 
So be an an individual that lives piously for the Lord. I think John Wooden, of all people, says it so well. He's the, the UCLA legend, a famous basketball coach, but he was also a devout Christian. And then he said these two things which stick out so true. The true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. Who you are when the doors are shut is who you are before God. And that is something that we need to think about. And he said on another occasion, your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. What people see, what we present, our persona, is our reputation. But it is not always our character. And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that God is after your character. So who are you? Secondly, we see the practice. And from verse 2 to verse 18, Jesus is giving us three examples of Christian piety. These three things that we are so tempted to use for ourselves and that we need a reality check to see why are we really doing this. The first example is giving to the poor. If you study the Old Testament, you know that giving was as part of the Jewish way of life. That as much as you would walk and live and breathe and even eat food, part of what they would do is give alms to the poor. That they would care for individuals, for their brothers and sisters who were in need. And God was a God of mercy. If you look in Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8, he says this to his people. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. God is a God of mercy, and he wanted his people to care for the poor among them. That if you saw your brother in need, you would care for him. You would give him what was needed to help him. And that was something that you see continued on even in the New Testament. One example is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, just a little bit before our text. He's saying, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Religious devotion was shown through giving to the poor, through caring for others. Giving to the poor was a form of worship and obedience to God. But even something as pious and as holy as giving could become a self-motivated desire. And you see this here, that they twisted it in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The synagogue was the place of worship. But even more so, as Pastor Kempis has mentioned, it was the, the social hub. It was everything for the Jewish person. Uh, everything would be done in the Jewish culture there. And then you also have these public places of the streets, which is just representing the place where everyone is congregating and people are passing by. And for these Jews, they were choosing to pray in the most public place. See, if you were a faithful Jew, oftentimes you would pray or you would give uh, however you could, right? Here he's talking about giving to the poor, but he's giving a very powerful example, right? An individual who, as he's giving, is somehow sounding a trumpet. And honestly, we don't know if Jesus is saying this is physically happening or if it's a metaphor, but it's a powerful picture, right? 
that a person comes up having some kind of big sum of money. And as the individual is dropping the money in the basket, trumpets are going off. Or people are looking at this individual that you have an announcer that's come and saying, so-and-so was given this much money to the church. Let's all congratulate him, right? And for most of us, we wouldn't naturally do that. We think that's absurd. But yet, even in our hearts, that is the tendency, right? That we can do this because we're trying to show ourselves to be pious, I remember one movie I saw, and I don't remember the movie, and I don't remember if I would even recommend it. But but one scene was so, so comical, and yet was so to the point. You had these two families that were fighting, and they were trying to one-up each other all the time. And so in Catholic Mass, as the offering plate is being passed around, one of the, the fathers of one family takes out a roll of tens, turns around, looks at the other father, flashes it in his face, and drops it in the basket. And then so the other father, not wanting to be outdone, you know, tells his wife, no, we need to get more. Uh, give me a roll of 20s. Takes out the roll of 20s, looks back, looks at the other father, and drops it in. And I know that that's just a joke and a comedy, but easily we can fall into that type of temptation, right? That somehow we make our giving, whether it's to church or to the poor, somehow about us. That we're trying to draw attention to ourselves And in response, Jesus is denouncing that. He's saying that when you give, you must give to please God. Read with me verse 3 and 4. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's as powerful as saying that your hands don't even know each other that your left hand has no idea where your right hand is or what it is doing, that level of secrecy. And as we seek to be charitable, whether it's in our giving to the church or in our giving to help other people, we need to examine our hearts that the purpose of this giving, this purpose of this religious devotion is to please God. And our hearts need to be in the right place. Secondly, he gives the example of prayer. And we know that prayer is important for the Christian life, isn't it? We are called to pray. And the Jews oftentimes would pray three times a day. They would pray once in the morning. Uh, They would pray secondly during noon, and they would pray again in the evening. Uh, You see an example of this in Daniel 6.10, where they're talking about Daniel's prayer life. And the point there is to say that Daniel is truly a devout Jew. He prayed as much as you should. He is doing what is necessary to be religious. And we as Christians, we pray to draw our dependence on God, right? We don't pray because we need to inform God about what's going on, but we pray to build our dependence and trust in him, to grow how much we need him. But something as holy as prayer can be unholy as well, right? Read verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by other people. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And this is, again, a poignant example. See, if you were a faithful Jew, you knew that at those times, a certain time in the morning, a certain time at noon, and a certain time in the evening, you would stop and pray, right? But because of that, you could choose. Sometimes you would try to find a very discreet way of leaving where you are and and go pray in a quiet place so you can be before God. Or 
you could choose to stay in the most public place. You could look for the areas where the most people would be and then showcase your devotion before everyone. And everyone in that day would say, what a holy individual. Right? This is the person that's in the marketplace with everyone, and yet they are choosing to proclaim their devotion to God. And Jesus calls such an individual a hypocrite because you're not doing it for God. You are doing it for yourself. It makes me think back to what I've once seen when I was a younger person in middle school. And we were off in a winter camp, and at winter camps, as they usually do, they would try to record what's going on and have a video where they show at the very end how awesome of an experience it would be. Right? It's what winter camps and summer camps do. And I remember standing next to one of my friends, and there was a camera that was kind of on our area. And when I was watching back the video, I saw this individual that I know wasn't very religious or spiritual. And yet in this video, his hands were lifted up. He was praying and almost crying and so emotional. And the most haunting thing is I could look and every once in a while he would kind of open his eye to see if the camera was still on him. That is religious hypocrisy in its truest form. But even though the camera may not be on every single one of us, we can pray in that way, can't we? whether it's our public prayers or the way that we know people will see us, we can pray in a way that is worshiping ourselves instead of God. And so in response, Jesus says, verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That word for room or in the NASB is inner room is, is really a closet. It's the most private room in a Jewish household. And honestly, that was the only room that they would ever usually lock up. And Jesus says, when you pray, go to that quiet place. Go to that secret place where no one else will see you. And there you can worship me. And so when you are seeking to pray, when you're doing something as religious as prayer, make sure it is really about you and God. Make sure that no one else knows and that you're doing it with the right heart. Well, Jesus gives us one final example, and that's the example of fasting. See, fasting is, is done in many different ways and reasons. And today, oftentimes, people fast as, as a, a way of weight loss, right? It's actually very effective, or so I've heard. Uh, But here, fasting at this time was done as a way of devoting yourself more to God. The point is that when you feel that hunger, when it hurts inside, you say, God, I need you more than I need this food. It was a form of making yourself extra desperate before the Lord. And there was only one time of a mandatory fast for the Jews. It was the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. During that time, as the, as, as the sin of the people was being sacrificed and being atoned for, the people would fast as a way to show their need for God. But then in Jewish society, fasting was done at any time where you were just extra heightened in your need for the Lord. If you were in a dire situation or life was difficult, you would say, okay, I need to fast. I'm going to fast, and then I use this time to pray to God and show my desperation for him and beg him to come and deliver me. And you see this in the book of Esther, or the story of Esther. The the Jews are about to be annihilated. Every one of them is going to be killed. And so Esther knows that she's going to go before her husband, the king, 
She doesn't even know if she's going to live because she wasn't even allowed to approach him and she might even die. And so in that moment, she tells Mordecai and all the Jews, fast for me as I prepare to go and do this grand action to save our people, fast and beg God to spare us. That is the purpose of a fast. And yet the Jews of his day had once again turned it into an opportunity to flaunt their piety. Right? You see this in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. See, when you fast, you look and feel miserable. It's hard to go without food, right? I once did a semi-mandatory fast for five days as part of another organization I was working with, and that was terrible. You even look around the room at all of the interns, and we just looked miserable. We just sat in the common room, and people often wouldn't even talk because we're just so hungry for food. You look and feel terrible when you fast. But in that... These religious hypocrites use that to their advantage. Yes, they would look and feel miserable. And they did everything they could to make sure people saw it. Whether it's through casting uh, sackcloth and dust and ashes on themselves, or whether it was just not taking care of your face, you would do whatever you could to draw attention to yourself. So that way, when someone came up to you and said, what's wrong? You you could say, oh, I'm just fasting before the Lord. This is just a hard time where I'm just going before God. The whole thing is a show. And so if you want to do this properly, if you want to be Christian as God has called us to be Christian, he says, take care of your appearance when you fast. And in verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who sees in secret, or who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He's saying that when you fast, take care of your body. If you're a lady, put on makeup. If you're a guy, wash your face and groom your hair. So that way the fast really is between you and me. That no one else has to know. That no one else is even interested in wanting to uncover what's going on. And that when you are trying to be extra desperate for me, it really is for me. And so as you hear these three examples, I hope you feel some level of repetition because that's exactly Jesus's point. That all three of these examples of giving to the poor, of prayer and of fasting, these are pious actions. These are forms of spiritual disciplines and devoting ourselves to God. And yet we must make sure that we have the right motivation behind them. That yes, we can do these actions to worship God, but they can also be done to fluff our ego, to worship ourselves, to point to ourselves. And so in this, Jesus asks, why do you do what you do? Why are you seeking to be pious? Why are you seeking to pursue holiness? Because even the holiest of our actions can be sinful. See, in this section, Jesus isn't denouncing a pursuit of piety, right? He's not saying, don't be holy. Don't pursue holiness. He's saying, do it with the right intent, right? Jesus himself, if you look at Matthew 14, 19, he would pray publicly. You know, he did that before he fed the 5,000. It is good to pursue a life of holiness. 
And he's not saying that doing religious deeds in public is bad. He's saying, check your heart. Be a holy individual. Make sure you are doing the right things. You know, just before in Matthew 5, 16, he said this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Now we as Christians should be living a righteous life that is visible. But in our character, in the way that you interact with your family and coworkers and friends, you should be godly. You should be righteous. You should be pious. That people should be able to look at your life and see what it means to be a Christian and so want to worship God. But do all of those things in a way that is for him and not for you. And so as you as a church is serving, make sure you have the right intent. I've been so blessed to see how so many of you are indeed serving in this church. That more and more people are not wanting to just come for a Sunday service and basically come for a show, but you're wanting to get plugged into the church. That you are getting involved in fellowship groups and building relationships with people and really getting to know them on a personal level. And there are so many of you that are serving in more and more ministries. That even as we're building the media team, that we saw many people wanting to use their gifts for God. And I think even of my youth staff in the Vine and Summit. There's right? so many people that are busy and have many things going on, and yet they're choosing to sacrifice their time and energy to serve our younger generations. That is good. And that is what God calls us to do. But make sure you are doing it with the right intent. Make sure it is not to serve yourself or to look good to others, but that you are doing it to God. Because our pursuit of piety needs to be a form of worship. That we are doing it for him. That we are doing it knowing that he is the one that will reward us on that final day. But even more so that we do it because we believe in the grace that we have in Christ. That we are grateful for the cross. That we are in love with him, that he has given us eternal life and in love for his body that we serve and devote ourselves to him. And so I pray that that is you this morning. That you do worship with the right heart and with the right motive. Let's pray. Father, we confess how easy it is to deceive others and deceive ourselves. That we can be pious and yet have a poisonous heart. And so I pray, God, that for every one of us, you would teach us how to devote ourselves to you honestly, genuinely, purely. That we would seek to pray, that we would seek to worship and serve and fast and give to the poor in a way that is not about us, but is about you. And so God, if there are hypocrites in our midst, I pray that you would convict us, that you would make that a real concern, that every one of us would worship you with a holy heart. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.